Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for joining us today on Political Rewind. It's Election Day. Uh, June 9th, the long-awaited, long-delayed primary election finally uh, arrives. Um, you know, I want to, before I introduce the panel, let me say, you know, I've been a political reporter, as most of you know, for a very, very long time, which means that election days are like kind of my Thanksgiving, New Year's, uh, Christmas, all those holidays rolled into one, an exciting day, of a, kind of a joyous day uh, when uh, the stories that People like me have been covering for months and months, finally uh, reach a culmination, and it becomes your day uh, to go out and vote. And, and I still feel that sense of um, excitement because Election Day is all of that. But I have to say this year, uh, given the pandemic, given the uh, protests in the street, the violence that we've seen, um, it feels grimmer. And it feels like the people who are out exercising their right to vote today are facing obstacles that uh, may be unlike anything they've ever faced before. So I guess more power to you if you have the if you get out there and stand in line and wait, socially distancing, wearing masks, whatever you do. Uh, I think it's still a day in many ways to celebrate our democracy. Um, that said, things are not going terribly well as Election Day gets underway. I'm going to bring in the panel, and we'll talk a little bit about that and much more. It's uh, Tuesday, which is a day. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, is uh, with me. Uh, Tamar, thank you. Glad to have you here today. And I'm sorry about the rescue dog barking in the background, but it's great to be here, too. Yes, we've been following the adventures of your new adopted puppy for some time now, so it's perfectly fine. Uh, we're also joined today uh, by uh, uh, Patricia Murphy. Patricia is a, a journalist herself. She's a columnist for Roll Call. She writes for USA Today. Her columns are syndicated. You can read them. Uh, if people are not reading Roll Call or USA Today, Patricia, where else should they look for your column? Well, first of all, they should definitely be reading those, um, but then they can follow me on Twitter at one Patricia Murphy. And I've okay, got them terrific. Uh, we're going to talk it, and we're going to talk in a, a little while about a, a column you've got up at Roll Call right now. Um, we'll get to that in just a minute. Kyle Hayes joins us today. He is the uh, man behind Peach Pod, which is a terrific podcast that deals with Georgia politics. And although Kyle uh, lives now in Washington and works on Peach Pod from there, Kyle, you're a, an Atlanta, a Georgia native, and uh, we're always glad when you uh, have an opportunity to join us for the show. I, I looked at your site. It looks to me like the most recent podcast you have up there is an interview with Sarah Riggs Amico, one of the candidates for Senate. Or oh, is there something more re recent that I haven't seen? No, that is the most recent one, and, and thanks for having me, Bill. We are working on content related to the demonstrations and a lot of what we've seen in our politics and in our society in the last week, but we did get a chance to touch base with Sarah Riggs-Amico in advance of today's primary. 
Okay. Uh, people can go to your Peach Pod podcast to find it, and they can uh, subscribe to that anywhere they get their podcast. Tia Mitchell is back with us as well today, the AJC's Washington correspondent. Uh, Tia, how are you doing? Um, you know, it's going to be a long day, I think. But, you know, this is this is a big day, and we'll be here to cover it. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, so let's start by talking about what we're seeing as polling places opened earlier uh, today. First of all, I want to share with you some uh, notes that I've been getting from our listeners. Uh, and, and I think you'll see they be, start a theme that we're going to all want to talk about. Uh, one of our listeners says, I just voted in Smyrna at the community center. No one knows how to operate the machines. The questions on the screen at check-in are also new No one knows what they mean. Uh, My wife had that same experience this morning uh, voting at her poll, our polling place. Uh, She didn't understand, all of a sudden faced with questions she'd never had to deal with before. She said the the email uh, says the volunteers are running around with extension cords and tape trying to get the machines running. Uh, The scanner has been moved a couple of times, which means people have to figure out where they they scan the ballot, the printout that they get. She says that at 7.50, she was only the 11th person to cast um, a uh, ballot. Another email from a listener who lives up in Sandy Springs. She says, we just went to 8100 Holcomb Bridge in Alpharetta instead of our normal voting location in Sandy Springs. The voting system is down We heard that people are using paper ballots. Someone said the ballots aren't printed. Lines are not moving. We saw people leaving after standing outside for an hour and a half. Um, Got an email from another listener who sent a photograph of a parking lot in front of a polling place in downtown Decatur. Full parking lot at about 7.15 in the morning. He did not tell me what was going on inside, but clearly uh, there were people who were looking forward to vote. Uh, casting their votes there. Now, that said, we should add, um, and by the way, if you're experiencing problems, whether it's in Metro Atlanta, I'd really like to hear from some of you who are outside of Metro Atlanta. I've been checking uh, news sources in other parts of the state and haven't seen things posted there yet about troubles voting. So, you know, send us a, a, a note, tweet us at politicsgpb. Uh, add a note to Facebook Live if that's how you're getting the show today. Or you can email me at bnigat at gpb.org, and I'll be glad to uh, uh, check out what you've got to say. All right. All that said, both GPB News, we have a team out looking at polling places, how things are going. And you can go to gpbnews.org to find out more information. Um, and the HAC, too, of course, is uh, checking things out. tomorrow. Uh, AJC.com is reporting lots and lots of problems in Gwinnett, in Fulton. Uh, going down this list, it's uh, really uh, troubling tomorrow. Yeah, my colleague Mark Nisi is leading our, our live blog this morning with all of the, the kind of scenes across metro Atlanta at polling locations. And then I'll come in later in the afternoon as we start hearing a little bit more about results and what the campaigns are doing. But so far, um, in, in the, the two hours that, that polling places have been open, you know, it, it doesn't sound great. And we've seen tweets from a lot of elected officials, including Mayor Bottoms, who was saying that there are entire precincts, one of the, some of the largest in Atlanta, um, where 
where none of the machines are working or where people are being forced to file provisional ballots or where there are giant lines um, stretching out the door that are going to take hours to, to clear. So already it's, it's coming, you know, it's starting off very rocky. Um, it's very troubling. Uh, Patricia, of course, people are not, we're not only dealing with the social distancing rules that, pre, that polling places are trying to put in place. We're dealing with um, the fact that many people who uh, applied for absentee ballots and then decided to show up in person before they can vote, they have to go through a process of canceling out at the polling place their absentee ballot request. So those issues are going to take time in any case. And then, Patricia, the fact that we're seeing places where the machines, these brand new machines in use for the first major election uh, are apparently not functioning the way they're supposed to. State Representative William Boddy says that Fulton County is in a, he, his quote is, a complete meltdown. My phone hasn't stopped ringing. We're having issues throughout the county. Did they not know this was going to be a voting day for months? Fulton County's election board can't be let off the hook this time. It's inexcusable. Patricia? I mean, it just gives you a pit in your stomach to hear these stories. Um, and this election was already going to be a huge challenge because of the new voting machines. And um, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, to his credit, um, starting in January, started having trainings for poll workers, uh, for historically, for black churches, for at HBCUs to show people how these machines work. It was already known to be a, a major challenge to get poll workers ready for this um, with the rollout of the statewide machines. And um, I think when you add to that this unbelievable complication of COVID-19, sending out 6.9 million absentee ballot requests, John Ossoff um, was, was waiting in line yesterday or maybe the day before. He had requested an absentee ballot a month ago. He and his wife, neither of them ever got their absentee ballot, so they did go wait in line. It took two hours, even in an early polling um, site. And we know that when it comes down to county by county situations, there is this wide disparity of uh, what they're prepared to do. And we know that Fulton County was desperately trying to hire poll workers as recently as last week uh, because they were having a hard time getting anybody even to man these stations. So you have to ask, did they get those people? Were those people trained properly? And we absolutely cannot forget the health implications out there if we can't run the voting machines as everybody also being physically safe. Um, it's very worrisome. It's just very worrisome right now. Um, Tia, uh, we're getting, I, I, we're not going to read every single report, of course, of uh, places where there are election problems. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, it, we, there is, it is reasonable to ask um, how well prepared uh, counties have been for this election in light of the fact that the, the virus has uh, robbed them of, of the people who usually run polling places. A lot of people didn't want to become poll workers this time. As Patricia points out, uh, Fulton County put out an urgent request for 250 volunteers over the weekend to help man the polls. And Tia, um, I, I early voted last week and got in and out in about 10 minutes and had no problems at all. My wife got up and went to our polling place at 
6 o'clock this morning. There were about seven people in line. She voted quickly and easily, but she did say to you that the people who were manning that uh, uh, polling place, who were staffing that polling place, uh, were all volunteers who really didn't know much about the process. They'd kind of been brought in at the last minute. That kind of thing is troubling as well to you. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I've been thinking about is that I'm sure, particularly the populous counties, and probably will probably learn later today some of the rural counties, they're also suffering because they didn't. we didn't get that statewide dress rehearsal, if you will, that would have been the presidential primary, you know, that would have been on a slightly lower scale, um, slightly lower stakes, because, quite frankly, Joe Biden was the clear front runner. And because that didn't happen, and it's all happening now today in one massive uh, primary with lots of lots of candidates on the ballot, lots of contests that are that are really important. And I think that is just showing that that lack of preparation and that lack of just real world scenarios so that the election workers could in advance pinpoint some of the issues that they're seeing today. Just some stuff. I wonder if they just you know, you don't know what you don't know. Kyle, weigh in on this for us. So I think all of this raises the need to return to this discussion about sort of the fractured administration of these elections between county election boards that are administering a lot of the Election Day activities. They're the ones who are, you know, at all of these precincts trying to solve these problems with voting machines and and keep the lines down. But yet, you know, as Patricia mentioned, um, they are implementing these new machines that were mandated from the state level um, and there were issues with tr- with training and with all of the execution of all of this. Um, this fractured way of administering our elections, I think, leaves a lot of possibilities for people's right to vote to be infringed just by the, the technical problems that are being experienced. And, you know, there's I think it's worth consideration of whether or not some sort of constitutional model that that lays a constitutional right to vote lays that on the table and allows courts to hold the state more accountable for for making sure that that right to vote is protected um, is needs to be part of the discussion here because often what you see and you see a little bit of this from state officials this morning is when there are problems at local precincts state officials point their fingers at the locals and say this is their fault but the locals will say you know we don't have enough resources or We've been trying to hire poll workers, things like that. So there's a lot of back and forth here that I think needs to be addressed in a bigger way um, than just looking at the problems we're having on Election Day. Uh, Patricia, it is important to point out, uh, in light of Kyle's comments, that elections are run essentially at the county level. uh, But as he points out, it is the state's responsibility to uh, uh, oversee the elections, to provide the equipment uh, to give them whatever assistance uh, they need to run the election uh, fairly. But more important, Patricia, it, it strikes me, number one, we've talked for a couple days now about the fact that the way this election is unfolding with all of the absentee ballots that have poured in and with potentially long, long lines at the polls today, Secretary of State Raffensperger has already said he is not going to release any results until 
every polling place is closed. And we know that there are some polling places in some counties that are saying they may have to stay open till 9, 10 o'clock tonight, all of which is to say, who knows when we're going to start finding out, Patricia, who the winners are in some of the key races, in all of the races, but particularly in some of the key races that we as journalists are going to be covering. Well, I think that's exactly right. And then even in some of these um, closer contests, it could come down to the, that incredibly large number of absentee ballots, um, up a 400% increase over what is typically received. Those don't need to be, um, they need to be received by seven o'clock tonight, um, but how, they certainly can't be counted by seven o'clock tonight. So I think we are all anticipating if there's a close election, there will not only be a late count, um, but also likely a request for a recount. Um, if you've got all of these problems happening, how could you not request that if you are in, if you're a, a candidate with a close election? It's going to be incumbent upon you in your campaign, and it certainly gives them a, a wide open door to do that. What I'm going to be curious to see is is after this is all said and done, and and this could take days to resolve. You know, by the time all the races were kind of finished counting all of them, how receptive, especially Republicans, Republicans are going to be to to do more mail-in balloting and absentee balloting um, in in future elections. You saw some resistance initially from some Republican voices here and and President Trump at the national level. Um, you know, where he's threatening states like Michigan who are who are sending out ballots, and so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious if Republicans see this as a success, and even if there isn't a pandemic in the future, whether they're willing to do more of these um, vote-by-mail type elections, especially since many of their voters, especially in primaries, tend to be elderly, and, and maybe they decide that they like doing, you know, mail-in balloting uh, better than they do going into polling places. Oh, just a quick thing. Uh, um, a note? I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Just a quick thing. I think we're all saying there are so many things that we could be doing online instead. Uh, multinational corporations having board meetings by Zoom. You can pay bills online. A lot of things that you could not do online before. Um, it's crazy that we require Americans to physically vote. Um, there's a way to add security to it. You could do it in person once and then layer on additional forms of security. Um, but we've got the technology. I do think it's time start thinking about this is, does not feel like a secure way to vote right now. There, there must be a better way with technology to help us. Uh, from uh, down in Columbus, uh, an email from a listener who said that uh, he showed up at his polling place, the polling place listed on the Secretary of State's website uh, at uh, 645 and uh, got in line. They scanned his ID. They then said, oh, your polling place has been changed. He went to the second polling place where workers said, oh, yeah, we made this change at 4 o'clock this morning. He said it was three hours before they were planning. They thought they could get voting up and running. And uh, after about a half an hour, he finally requested a provisional ballot. Uh, and he said he's incredibly frustrated. And he himself you know, this is where we run into, Tia, uh, the kind of concerns that uh, go from just being breakdowns to uh, to political fears. This person feels he's a victim of suppression at this point. And, and that's where we're, where we're going to head with a lot of this, I think. And, and to some extent, some of it may be justified, but uh, it, it is certainly going to become 
uh, a political uh, story in the days ahead to you. Absolutely, because again, on this ballot, there are hotly contested primaries, and some of them could be very close, you know? So if you're, if the margin of who makes the runoff or who wins an election and who doesn't is a few hundred or a few dozen votes, then those provisional ballots become very important. And I expect candidates to have a lot of questions about, you know, did every vote in my race count? And that goes back to, you know, um, Stacey Abrams has faced a lot of criticism, particularly from conservatives, for how she handled um, not just the election in 2018, but, you know, refusing to concede and filing lawsuits and and after two weeks saying she's not saying she lost, but she said, I'm going to concede that I can't win. I'm going to accept that I'm not the winner. But a lot of the things she was complaining about are back here now. I want to be, Kyle, I want to be a little careful. Uh, it, it does appear right now that in many of the polling places where they're experiencing problems with the machines, it, it doesn't admit, it, so far we've seen no evidence that Republican machines are working better than Democratic uh, machines. I mean, there's no difference, really. It's just the ballot that you stick into a neutral machine. So I want to make it clear uh, we don't have anything that suggests that some of these problems right now are because of partisan concerns, Kyle. Yeah, but I think that even raises, you know, it, it, it brings me back to this question of of whether or not you can sort of pull election administration to an extent out of partisan politics by pulling it out of a secretary of state's office that is led by a, a partisan official um, so that those perceptions do not continue. You know, we, I mean, it was just a couple of weeks ago now that the GBI released their report that found that when Governor Kemp was secretary of state at the end of the 2018 election, and he accused Democrats of attempting to hack the voter registration system, um, that there was no basis for that claim. That was an instance where that was an authority given to him as the manager of elections, as the secretary of state. And it appeared that he used an authority within his own power for partisan gain. And so to the extent that you can ingrain voting rights and voting administration into the Constitution and shelter it from partisan motivations on either side, I think it lends to a greater perception that the vote is secure and not being impacted by partisan motivations. And then you don't have to ask that question when you have problems with machines that probably don't have a partisan lens to them, but but people have reason to raise these questions based on the other things that have happened. Yeah, Tamar, that what I think I think Kyle just made a point that's that, that's the whole point here, isn't it? Um, do you recall? I mean, there was a time when we trusted our elections uh, without question. I mean, for for. For much of the history of this country, despite the fact we've had election scandals in our history, for the most part, Americans have accepted as legitimate the outcome of elections. And suddenly our uh, default position is to be suspicious. And that that's one of the reasons it's harder for me personally to celebrate an election day the way I would have a number of years ago. Maybe 
I'm just a pessimist as a as a reporter, but it doesn't feel like people were ever really that trusting of elections in my lifetime. You know, I'm a millennial. I haven't been around too long, but it, it feels like um, as long as I've been paying attention um, the last 15 or so years, it doesn't seem like people trusted all that much. And, and there's kind of layers of distrust, right? Um, you talk about how these voting machines, it's not necessarily a, a partisan thing. They, they process ballots in the same way, no matter where you are. But at the same time, historically, a lot of these Democratic counties in Metro Atlanta, like Fulton County, um, have had a really hard time administering elections. There's there's typically delays and, and issues with machines. We saw in Gwinnett County last year a ton of problems, or sorry, in 2018, um, a ton of problems as well. You add to that what happened in the 2018 elections with Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, the level of mistrust on the state level. And then you add somebody like Donald Trump nationally, who's talking, you know, about whether, um, you know, all this fake news, all these foreign actors, you know, it becomes a national and international thing. So that's the problem. There's just been mistrust sown at every level of, of all of this, whether it's, it's valid or not, in your opinion. And that makes it really hard to do anything that, that people will accept. Tia? Yeah, and and I also just want to bring in that the new voter machines are likely adding to some of the problems and 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 because they're new, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with them. However, there are people who from the jump mm-hmm. predicted that, you know, sticking with touch screens and sticking with, you know, voting in this way lends itself to these types of problems. So even that itself is a partisan issue because we know that Republican leaders at the state level are who pushed to keep touchscreen. You know, there was a lot of people who said there should be ballots marked by hand, which is um, doesn't require um, so much technology. And that's not what our leaders in the state decided to go with. And at the crux is that's some of the problems we're seeing today. I think also for every problem that we see today, you can draw a straight line back to the 2000 election to see a different kind of problem we were trying to solve after in Florida, they had all of the hanging chads and it was just a table full of volunteers trying to figure out who this voter had meant to vote for because the little piece of paper was either halfway out or fully out. Um, When there's, I think people decided when there was human judgment involved in evaluating what a vote counted for, that itself could become a problem. Um, But again, in 2000, I mean, I know a lot of Democrats who don't think George Bush was elected president. (laughs) I think the the loss of faith in the vote when you had a Republican secretary of state, then it goes up to a uh, mostly Republican Supreme Court decision. And even Al Gore said, well, similar, you know, for the good of the country, I'm going to not draw this out any further. So I think we've got, as par- as po- politics has become more partisan, voting um, has become more elementally uh, partisan, and the, and the faith in that vote tends to uh, track with your faith and the elected leaders who are making the decisions about it, which does lend itself to think, is there any way to pull this out of the partisan conversation as Kyle Kyle suggested? Uh, I've got to get to a break. Uh, Before I do, uh, Gabriel Sterling, who is the uh, uh, gentleman in charge of Georgia's new voting system for the Secretary of State's office, has now said that most of the problems 
are occurring in Fulton County. Some election workers, he says, tried <clears throat> excuse me, to insert voter cards upside down. Sterling, uh, this is apropos of uh, I think your comment, Kyle. It may have been you. Sterling blamed the county's election management for the problem. That said, uh, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County, just released a statement uh, at the beginning of a commission meeting over there in which he said the county is receiving hundreds of calls from throughout the county at various polling sites regarding voting machines not working, long delays, confusion about who to call, and and uh, the uh, he Thurman went on to say that election staffs are working to rectify the issues, but Thurman laid the blame on the state. Quote, we have a new voting system that Secretary of State Raffensperger put in place. There were concerns that there might be disruptions, and apparently those disruptions are manifesting themselves. So that's the latest. That is what has been happening in the hours after uh, balloting began in person Voting began in the state of Georgia. We will continue to look at uh, problems as they uh, come in uh, to us. But we got a lot more to talk about on the show today, including just who's on the ballots and uh, how are those races stacking up? This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Tia Mitchell. Kyle Hayes, Patricia Murphy, and Tamar Hallerman uh, join me for Political Rewind on this election day, uh, June 9th. Um, Patricia, one of the uh, uh, premier races that we'll be watching, of course, is on the Democratic side. It's the uh, primary to uh, choose a nominee to face off against David Perdue in what we call Senate race number one. A reminder and we've done this several times on the show, if you go in wondering why Kelly Leffler, Raphael Warnock, Doug Collins, others who you know are running for Senate are not on your ballot, it is not a mistake. That election won't take place until November because it's, that will be a special election to fill what was Johnny Isaacson's Senate seat. Okay, that said, uh, Patricia, uh, how are you watching uh, that race unfold? I mean, the polling, and there hasn't been a lot of it, but what polling there is suggests that John Ossoff has got a pretty wide lead, but the job of Sarah Riggs Amico and Teresa Tomlinson is going to be to hold him under 50% and live to fight another day, yes? I think that's exactly right. I think most people expect this to go to a runoff, uh, even though Ossoff, uh, in a recent WSB landmark communications poll, was polling at 40%. Um, and 20 points, at least 20 points ahead of Tomlinson, um, that's still 10 points below where he really needs to be. Um, he also uh, also did something recently that raised a red flag for me as somebody watching it, just in terms of writing his campaign a check for $450,000. That is the type of move that a candidate does when they aren't getting the kind of uh, – uh, stampede of support and in, in terms of fundraising uh, that they'd really like to see. It's a tough environment, um, but I think all they need to do is to get into that 
uh, to get into that runoff by keeping Alsop under 40 percent. I think his um, endorsement from John Lewis is extremely important. It helps him enormously. He, uh, Ossoff has been very visible in uh, marches in Atlanta against uh, police brutality. Um, so I think he's doing what he needs to do, but getting over 50 is going to be a very high hurdle today. I think there's a, another way to view the, the $450,000 check that, that Ossoff cut himself. Um, there's some other polling that shows that he's closer to 45%. Um, and that's a Republican poll. And, you know, there's there's not a ton of polling. Let's put asterisks in, in, behind all of these. But, you know, it could also symbolize that he's trying to get to, trying to, get to that knockout punch. He wants to get to 50% so that he's not dragged into a runoff. And Ossoff knows well, as well as anybody else mm-hmm. how unproductive predictable runoff can be in Georgia. He nearly won outright the 6th District Congressional um, primary back in, in 2017. He came within two or three percentage points of that in a crowded field that had some 18 candidates and a ton of Republicans. And once Karen Handel was able to put him into a runoff, um, she ended up defeating him by four points. So I think he knows you might as well try and win it outright, because especially in Georgia, runoffs can be so predictable, unpredictable. So we're going to watch that race very closely. And, of course, David Perdue is uh, assured of being the candidate who will run for re-election on the uh, Republican side of the race. Um, you know, uh, Tia, I want to go to a race that we, we ran down some of the big races on this show yesterday. I hope listeners were out there and heard a lot of that. And I realized after the show that I neglected to mention what's uh, shaping up as a pretty interesting contest. Uh, and that's the 13th district um, where you've had an incumbent who is now running for his, I think, 10th term in Congress, a Democrat, David Scott. Uh, and yet he's once again taken on significant opposition. He's uh, being challenged for the second time by Michael Owens, the former Democratic chair of the, of the uh, Cobb County Democratic uh, Party. And uh, Keisha Waits, who was a state representative uh, for a while. So, you know, that race is interesting because you would think by now, Scott, people are going to leave him alone. He's been there a long time. Yeah, I think the race has been so interesting to watch for me. Another candidate um, who's running against Scott is former East Point Mayor Jan Quell Peters. So you have three Democratic challengers who all have of, uh, an element of name recognition in portions of the district. Um, but it seems to me as as an observer that none of those challengers have really caught on in visible ways. That doesn't mean that they can't pull out an upset today because, mm. you know, um, in, a, in a district like District 13, if you get enough grassroots support, anything can happen. But number one, COVID-19 has stymied their fundraising, I mean, stymied their campaigning. None of the three was particularly um, adept at fundraising. And, of course, as an incumbent, David Scott entered the race with a with a big nest egg. And then, unlike other races, you're not getting prominent endorsements of people coming out and saying, hey, we need to get rid of this incumbent. So I think all of those factors together means that you know, it's going to, even though David Scott is vulnerable, and that's clear by the fact that he does have these challengers, 
Um, even his biggest vulnerability, that he doesn't live in the district. Well, guess what? Two of those three challengers don't live in the district either. Yeah, and I had wondered Kyle, as um, I watched this. Okay, Bill. No, you go ahead. Um, I had wondered as I was watching this race, it sort of had similar themes to me of some of the progressive upsets of establishment Democrats. You think of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, her victory over Joe Crowley in 2018, the primary challenge to Elliot Engel in New York uh, that's going on this cycle. Um, We talked with Michael Owens uh, last year, and it was notable that he backed this full list of progressive goals, Medicare for All, Green New Deal, ending the war on drugs. And he has levied criticisms similar to those levied in other primary challenges like these, that the the incumbent is absent from the district. Um, you know, Scott skipped the Atlanta Press Club debate in this race. Um, so you have, I think, a similar dynamic there. What I wonder is that part of what added to, you know, helping those challengers catch fire in those other places is voters hungry for those more progressive policies. And those victories have come in places like New York and California that are much more progressive than the Democratic electorate in Georgia. I wonder if that's a barrier to some of these challenges to Scott, that voters may not be in the same place as progressive challengers and voters in other places. The 13th is such an interesting district. It's deeply Democratic. I want to say it voted for Hillary Clinton by some 80 percentage points in um in 2016. And if it's not that, I mean, it was some overwhelming um, amount. And so when you talk to somebody like Michael Owens, when he first announced his challenge, you know, it, it was tempting to think that that maybe somebody with a much more liberal platform than than uh, David Scott, who's an unapologetic blue dog kind of centrist Democrat on Capitol Hill, you know, maybe there was room for somebody to come in on, on David Scott's left. But at the same time, you know, David Scott is, is known for these job fairs that he throws around the district. He does it, I think, every year, if not more than that. And he's become known as this guy who, who really wants to help his constituents get back to work in what was a really economically distressed district. It was still struggling to recover from the 2008 recession before um, COVID-19 hit. And so his message of, of empowering especially African-American men, I think, is something that's, that's resonated over time. And it, it's helped carry him even as he's kind of struggled with fundraising compared to a lot of incumbents. Uh, It'll be interesting to watch how that race unfolds. Um, You know, right here in Fulton, a race that we haven't talked about at all. um, Patricia, I don't know if you've been paying as much attention to it or not, so you'll tell me that we have a fascinating district attorney's race. Paul Howard, longtime district attorney in the county. He is um, fighting really for his life right now. Uh, He has uh, got some a couple of strong challengers. And he's hurt by the fact that he's also under investigation now for financial, uh, for redirecting money in a, in a deal that he made with Kasim Reed, the mayor of uh, Atlanta back in the day. And th- that was supposed to go to a foundation, some of which ended up in his, uh, as, as a supplement to his own pay. Uh, that's playing out in the middle of all this. That's going to be a fascinating race to watch, Patricia. And even more so if Fulton County can't get its act together in terms of getting people voted today. Yes. Um, also, uh, he made the decision to arrest uh, the police officers who were involved 
and um, in uh, tasing the students, uh, the Morehouse students, Feldman students uh, down in Atlanta, and uh, the Atlanta police chief came out immediately and said, "This is I. I had handled this. I had fired those officers, um, and this is a completely political stunt on the part of Paul Howard." And um, to me, that certainly uh, raised his profile in a way that could uh, help him in some ways, maybe hurt him in some ways, but it certainly is the not, not the kind of endorsement <laughs> that you will want to be getting um, leading into an election day. Um, it put a very bright spotlight on, on him and some of his other decisions um, that uh, I will be interested to see how it affects them. Um, somebody sent out a horrible flyer that uh, it was sent to me by by uh, someone who favors uh, uh, one of the other candidates. Nevertheless, it came out. It, um, uh, it, it, don't let them lynch uh, Paul Howard. Uh, that's about as offensive. Have F. Paul Howard, an African American, uh, about as offensive as a, as you can get, especially at the times we're living in right now. I, I know there's no suggestion it was sent out by. One of the other campaigns, we don't know who sent it out, but uh, it, it's it's pretty darn offensive. Let's do this. Let's take a break and and get that out of the way and come back with more on today's political rewind, including whatever updates we can give you on how voting is going around the state. Uh, this is political rewind. And now I'm hearing from Woodstock in Cherokee County, a listener who says, my husband and I were at our polling spot in Woodstock at 710 this morning to try to get in before work. The line literally did not move for 45 minutes. People started leaving after we were told the machines were down and the poll workers could not get in touch with anyone for help. We're going to go back later and we're hoping the machines are fixed, but I'm concerned that others who made that time to vote before work will not be able to get back later. So this notion that it's just Fulton County, uh, the statement that we saw from the uh, state secretary of state's office seems uh, to not be completely accurate. Maybe they, too, are learning that the problems with voting are much more widespread than they uh, thought. Uh, Tia Mitchell, we know that we're going to see some uh a real interesting competition on both the Democratic side and the Republican side in the 7th District congressional races. There, you've got two fields of candidates who uh, are, are fighting to replace Rob Woodall, who's uh, retiring from Congress at the end of the session. And uh, I, I assume, Tia, that's a race you're going to be paying close attention to. Yes, um, the 7th is definitely one of those races. And it's really the only truly competitive seat with primaries in both um, in both parties on the ballot today. So you've got several Democrats and several Republicans. Of course, there are front runners, um, Rich McCormick and Doc, Dr. Rich McCormick, State Senator Renee Unterman are kind of the leading Republicans. Um, but there are others that are, are kind of nipping at their heels, including former Home Depot executive Lynn Homrich. And then on the Democratic side, you've got State Senator, State Senator Zara Karinchak. You've got Carolyn Bordeaux, who we know ran in 2018 and came really close to beating the incumbent. And those two are kind of considered the front runners there. But you have people like 
State Representative Brenda Lopez Romero, Nabila Islam, who's like the very progressive AOC type candidate in that race. So again, both on the Republican and the Democratic side, those could be very tight races, particularly to figure out which two we expect runoff for both parties, which two make the runoff. So again, and this this uh, seat is based heavily in Gwinnett County as well as Forsyth County. So Gwinnett County is one of the counties that we're starting to hear issues from. So um, it could be a long night to even find out who's in, in, in play for District 7. Kyle, if you want proof today of just how diverse Gwinnett County, a formerly Republican stronghold, has become, all you have to do is look at the Democrats running for that 7th District seat. It's a remarkable display of diversity and says so much about how uh, minorities in the county, people who are in the minority in the county are insisting on their place at the table. That just in and of itself is really interesting to me. Yeah, such such a wide array of candidates from various backgrounds, people uh, with various policy positions, ideological beliefs. I think it is reflective of the way in which that county and that district has changed a lot in recent years. And it actually makes me interested in the way Republicans approach their primary, um, because that if they are seeking to hold on to Rob Woodall's seat and keep that in Republican hands, um, they're dealing with a much different electorate than the one that Rob Woodall faced for much of his congressional career. Um, and so, you know, the the approach of State Senator Renee Unterman, uh, who has championed her uh, her role in passing the abortion ban legislation, um, you know, typically con- uh, Republican primaries are a race to the right, um, but that seems a little bit out of step with the general electorate, general election electorate that they're going to face. And so that even makes the Republican side interesting as well. Um, uh, Tia, uh what, I'm sorry, Tamar, what is the, what is the, if there's a couple of races that you're really, I know you're going to be watching for the AJC later today as we hope results start coming in, uh, of the races that we haven't talked about, is there anything that really stands out as something you're going to be paying close attention to? I mean, clearly there are a lot of races, but I'm giving you a chance to just name a favorite I mean, for me, the 7th District is the most fascinating because I remember covering that district in 2016, and there was no there was no contest. Um, and I remember covering it in 2018 when Rob Woodall said, you know, there, there was an internal poll that, that showed that he was 20 points up the week before Election Day over Carolyn Bordeaux, and she came within 500 points of beating him. And the ground has just shifted so rapidly in Gwinnett County especially that I'm fascinated to see especially the type of Democrats that emerge into this runoff. And because there are so many well-known candidates in this race, I'm expecting a runoff on, on both sides. So I'll be curious to watch that. As for the, um, the 9th and the 14th districts, which we haven't talked about yet, those are two deeply conservative districts in North Georgia. Doug Collins is giving up his seat to run against Kelly Leffler, and, and Tom Graves is retiring. Um, those races, people are, are running as far as they can to the right flank and, and trying to kind of out-conservative one another. It'll be interesting to see what 
kind of flavor of, of conservative we're going to get out of, um, out of these races. And especially there's some like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a, um, a business owner who initially was challenging Karen Handel in the 6th District. Um, you know, some of her opinions on social media have mirrored what we've seen on, on kind of conspiracy theory sites like QAnon. Um, she's favored to, to make it into a runoff in the 14th. And um, I'll be curious to see what kind of support people like her are, are getting. Patricia, I wanted to come to you <clears throat> toward the end of the show because your the column you've just posted in Roll Call, I think, really sets the tone for a lot of what unfolds uh, on Election Day today. Uh, you talk about the coronavirus. Uh, you talk about the protests against uh, police brutality in the state. And you say, among other things, this. The virus and now the global protests against racial injustice have thrown the election into territory so unprecedented there's no way to predict what will happen other than to say that voting, either to keep President Donald Trump in office or to turn the page entirely, now feels to many as urgent as water to drink or air to breathe. And I think that statement is... It's it's a it's a it's a wonderful way of describing, I think, uh, Patricia, why we're seeing such tremendous interest in voting uh, in these 2020 elections. Well, I think with the virus, you you literally have to weigh the risk of your life. Do you can you go into this room with a bunch of people and is it safe? Um, but I think on a larger on a much kind of broader lens. With everything that's happened in the last two weeks, um, I went back and read MLK's Give Us the Ballot speech, uh, which he gave six years before his I Have a Dream speech. And he really outlined something that Keith Lance Bottom said and Taylor Mike said in their press conference um, the evening of the riots and the looting and the burning. All three of them said the only way forward is with the ballot. It's You, you can feel as angry as you want to feel. It's not going to be easy. It won't, it will take time. Um, you know, it took uh, nearly a decade after MLK gave the give it about speech before the Voting Rights Act passed. Um, but to me, that is the intellectual underpinning of the um, civil rights tradition here in Georgia and in America. And in my lifetime, I've never felt it so viscerally in the air as I do in this election. Um, Tia, the, the other aspect, the, the other thing that's part of that is um, when Mayor Bottoms made her remarks last Friday night that captured the nation's attention and, and catapulted her into new national celebrity, um, she excoriated the crowd. She, she reprimanded them, saying the, the, the looting, the vandalism, this is not what Dr. King was all about. And she basically said to them, uh, if you want to do something, you want to make change, go out and vote. And we're almost out of time, but that's going to be crucial, perhaps not in this primary election today, maybe a little bit, but certainly moving forward as we go to November. How do how, the people who are suddenly socially and politically engaged, will they in fact go to the ballot box? Well, to quote Dr. King, he said, a riot is the language of the unheard. And so of course, voting is one way to be heard, but we're also seeing in many streets in America that people believe that protesting and some people believe that property damage is the way to be heard. So the question, I think, is for candidates and political officials 
to demonstrate that they are willing to listen, and that might encourage more people to support them on Election Day. Tia Mitchell, you got the last word in today's Political Rewind. Um, Tamar Hallerman, Patricia Murphy, Kyle Hayes, and Tia, thank you so much for joining us on this Election Day. Big day confronting us here in Georgia. GPB News will keep you on top of it as it proceeds. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, Back again with another show, the post-election political rewind tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and please stay healthy.